podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Satchmo says, is Bradman the most dominant individual in history across all team sports? Probably not. It's probably a woman, if we're being really honest. Uh, I can't think of anyone, but I'm sure there's, there's probably a woman that's probably been more dominant than Bradman just because of the way that women's sport developed. I mean, it's it's almost an impossible thing to have a look at. You know, you know, how do you compare him to what Wayne Gretzky did, for instance? Also, he's a single he's a single side of the ball player, if that makes sense. Like he's not also giving you much when you're bowling. Are there other team uh, athletes who did more on both sides of the ball, for instance? So, so if you look at a a basketballer or a midfielder in football, those sorts of uh, those sorts of people. So it's a very tough one to answer, but you know, he's certainly up there. I don't think there's that many people above him on the list, but, uh, but I don't know if that makes him top. Um, you'd have to do a real deep dive statistically, um, to have a look, but there certainly aren't many players who are 40% better than the next best player, um, from a statistical standpoint in team sports that often. But the other thing to remember is that team sports, it's harder to judge things just on statistics in some team sports. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers, but he's pretty good. Um, Aditya says, along with you, many other journalists have mentioned that in the near future, franchise cricket will become primary while international cricket will only hold relevance when it comes to ICC events. This model is vaguely similar to when football follows, where in leagues in Europe and South America are bigger draw than international games in other world cups uh, and other than world cups. Sorry. Is it possible that cricket uh, that is it possible in cricket, given the player pool, most elite footballers play only one league, but given the size of the player pool, this is unfeasible in cricket. Well, there's more footballers in the world than there is cricketers, um, uh, so I'm not quite sure how that follows. Um, another hindrance is BCI's a uh, BCCI's reluctance to allow Indian players to play in leagues. I think you're thinking about leagues as they currently stand now. You're not thinking about what will happen you know the the hundred will be a four-month tournament the ipl might be a six or an eight-month tournament that's what we're talking about we're not talking about it as it currently stands we're talking about it when players only can play in one tournament because they're exhausted and they need the time off and you know those other little bits will be available for international cricket that's really when the the big change um uh, happens at this year i think at the moment you know, we're a long way off that, but we're already starting to see some of the signs, you know, players deciding to go freelance, um, you know, TV ratings being a lot more flat um, for, for uh, flat's the wrong word, a lot more consistent for franchise games because you know that for the next two months, a game's going to be on, or for the next month, a game's going to be on your TV every single day, night in prime time, right? International cricket can't do that. The players are too exhausted. There's no way to be able to replicate that. So we're already seeing in many different ways that it's already starting to happen. The difference is that what we're to, what what a lot of us are talking about is that next step when these leagues become much bigger. I'd be shocked if 
you know, I don't, and I don't know how many years this will take, but I'll be shocked if let's say in 20 years time, there isn't a six months T20 league that's very successful and, you know, another four month one and maybe another couple of three, three and a half month ones. Um, there's more than enough cricketers to do this. I mean, if you look at basketball, if you look at football, um, if you look at rugby, all these sports are like that, right? They're all uh, league-driven sports. We went a different way in cricket, and there will always be a pullback towards international cricket. I think there's maybe stronger than than some other um, things, but uh, than some other sports. But even so, I really think uh, this is probably the direction that cricket is now going. Um, just because it's a better financial model for, you know, you look at the, I said this when, when New Zealand and England pulled out of Pakistan, it's like, if I was running the P, uh, Pakistan right now, the PCB right now, be like, great. How do we make the PSL, um, a three month tournament? How do we get much more money out of it? Uh, you know, how do we drive it so that we have a second tournament, whatever that may be? Um, all these things are possible. And it's just that cricket isn't really thought of that way. And, you know, you already get people like, saying and and you know we're all we're all to blame with this oh you know season's too long the season's too long they kind of say that in baseball and football and basketball as well and their seasons are really long like everyone most fans get a burnout at a certain point but the ability to cash in on on casual fans night after night um or, or weekend after weekend however your league works uh is so important and cricket doesn't have that with the international calendar and will never have that with the international calendar not to mention the politics that go into actually trying to work these out. Everything is easier at the franchise level than it is at the international level. Um, and you can make more money. So, yeah, I think that's where people will go. Abolash says, who do you think has been the better IPLC so far? CSK or Mumbai? I know in head-to-head games, Mumbai have been better, but I think overall CSK have been better hmm. and have better peak years. Oh, that's really interesting. I think if you go from the start of the IPL to now, and that includes a you know a couple of years match facing suspension for CSK, which, which might have been terrible years, it might have been good years, I don't know. But I think if you look at it all together, I would say Chennai is the better team, but I would also probably say that Mumbai had the better peak. So I suppose it depends on what you're looking for here. If, if you're if you're looking for the answer to be who had the better peak, I wonder if Mumbai probably had their best peak for a long time, um, but. Over the entire course of the IPL, Chennai is just so incredibly consistent time after time. So um, I'm not sure if that which end which way you look at it. It probably depends on you as a fan. Um, for me, that probably means that CSK is the better team, but that Mumbai were um, maybe you know the more exciting one when they were at their best. But they've obviously both been incredible. Lewis says, if you're in charge of creating a brand new tournament. Uh, what would you put in place? Where would you hold it? What format would you use? Would it be a men's or women's or both? Assuming unlimited budget and full control. Um, wow. Um, if I'm doing a new tournament, what would I do? I, I, okay. If it was me, I suppose I'd probably try and do a... If, if, every, if I had full control and, as you said, I could do whatever I want, I'd probably do a franchise test tournament now. Um, I think that's the best way to secure Test cricket into the future. Um, I would do it for men's and for women's, and I would try and do it as a three-tier um, system for both, so that you have you know tier one Test cricket, tier two Test cricket, and tier three Test cricket. Um, so that you're looking at what twenty-four teams, say, or twenty-one teams, however that works out best. Um, which I think would give you. I think that would be it. Um, 
and I would play it, you know, uh, well, probably be a rebel league. So <laughs> where I play it, I don't know, it's quite interesting, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think that is what I would do. Um, if I, if I could do anything, um, what Fairbreak did is really interesting. Uh, and, and whether in T20 cricket, whether it be men's or women's, having a tournament where obviously you're not going to get the Indian players, but every other player in the world could play and there was no overseas limits, but you, the, what the limits you did have would be, let's say, you know, three associate players um, or two, probably two associate players in each team. I think that would be a really interesting league to be able to, um, to come up with. That one, you probably want it set in either Asia or South Africa. I think, I think, was sort of the Middle East or South Africa is probably the mo the best place because the time zones work with you know the majority of the Asian audiences and the UK audience, which are going to be the two most the, the best audiences for making money. Um, uh, so yeah, that's probably how I would look at that. Um, I probably have some wacky rules too, for being honest. Uh, I I've always wanted. I think I've written about this before. Having a T twenty game where the first two overs you have two players out. The sec sorry, first five overs you have two players out. The second five overs you have three players out. The sec four players, five players, um, out of the ring. Um, uh, you know, little things like that. So, you, uh, and also, I would probably allow you to bowl back to back overs, a bit like what the hundred did. Um, yeah, I probably have some weird rules. Oh, I, I, I tell you what else that I have. I would have. Uh, every team can go in with, I don't know, 15 or 16 players and can use them interchangeably. Um, as you know, as long as one player doesn't bowl more than, well, I might make it 30 balls, but whatever that may be. Um, but yeah, yeah, you've opened that, opened that, uh, box on me, Lewis. Johnny says, Owen Morgan said this week, referring to McCullum, that international cricket coach isn't a coach, but more of a manager and a mentor. Yeah, I think, I think he's pretty much right on that. It's actually most international players are going to come fully formed and you also have specialist skills coaches. So um, a head coach is probably, they might, they might work with the, with a batter if a batter has a technical problem, but more likely that you have a batting coach that does that. And what the head coach is doing is facilitating the best uh, available resources for that. Um, I don't think at that level, you're doing that much technical changes and that's why you have the specialist coaches anyway. So I think more, I, I think realistically most head coaches should be like this. It's just that at the lower levels that don't have the ability to always have the specialist coaches around that they need. But you know, what we've been moving towards in international cricket and certainly in, in franchise cricket as well is having specialists for each individual thing. If that's the case, then the person you really want at the moment at the top is the coach of the coaches really and a mentor and a manager, which is kind of what Owen Moore, he's probably just missing out the, the other thing, which is you still want your coaches to be coached, if that makes sense. Um, you want a, a, you know, a sort of a learning facilitator, you know, more like a head teacher than an actual teacher. Um, that sort of person still works. But, but I've done work with franchise before. There's many different kinds of coaches. You really have to look at your individual team. There are international teams that I still think very much need a hands-on coach, um, even at the top. And there are other teams that definitely just need a facilitator and, and need the specialist coaches to, to be involved there. Ian says, if an apocalyptic split between red ball and white ball cricket happen, could the red ball game survive as a standalone professional sport? Yeah, I mean, I think it will happen one way or another, uh, whether it's done uh, by some rebel league or just a natural split, because it, the thing is that there is too much money to be made from red ball cricket to get rid of it. This is the weird thing. 
there's so much money being left on the table because cricket boards are so fascinated with the white ball game and also because of the bilateral system of test cricket. It, it doesn't actually allow you to maximize the, the profits. As I've talked about before, you could turn it into a league. Uh, Ripple Cricket works as a TV product really, really well, but it works as a streaming product even better uh, because you, you're talking about 30 hours over five days or, or what, 26 hours, probably over four days if you wanted to change some of them. Um, so absolutely no doubt in my mind that there's still a lot of money to be made from Red Bull Cricket. It's also, if you think about it from an advertising perspective, it's actually a very good product from a um, uh, the people who like Red Bull Cricket are generally older and have more money. So you see that, you know, uh, I mean, in England, it's hilarious. It's like, you know, Jaguar and Investec and hair loss companies and all these sorts of things. Um, so it, it, has a, it has a very moneyed audience. Uh, it, it's just worth too much money to die. It really is. And, and th this is, you know, when we started Death of a Gentleman, that was the big thing that I kept saying to all these doomsday people is things that are worth, let's say cricket, uh, test cricket at its least is worth a billion dollars. Well, billion-dollar industries don't just disappear because people are interested. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? All the fans have to disappear for the industry to disappear, and I don't see that happening. Gopinath says, how do we realistically make sure unorthodox players get the opportunity to keep their skill and improve it before getting molded into traditional templates? I believe it is a grassroots-level issue, and it needs a solution at that level. Kumble, Afridi, Rashid, Majib, Narayan. There's going to be more of these fast, unorthodox spinners for in interest. Well, to be honest, I think the opposite of what you're saying there is most spin bowling coaches now are telling people to bowl quicker and quicker. So I don't think that's a problem with those sorts of guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's a really, it, it's, I think it's a problem that probably all sport faces. Um, there are individual sporting cultures that probably, I always thought that, for instance, the Australian basketball culture was a really interesting basketball culture because it had a combination of America and Europe, which actually allowed for these outliers. And if you have a look at players like Ben Simmons and maybe even Andrew Bogut, but, um, Josh Giddy coming through at the moment, maybe, um, Dyson Daniels, the, ne the next guy who'll probably get drafted quite high up. There's something weird about the combination of a European style and an american style that that has done we see that in cricket in probably in the west indies and sri lanka most readily these players who come with very vastly different kinds of techniques and ways of looking at the game um but the better your coaching gets um and the better your system gets quite often that sort of outlier is a problem i think where it doesn't I'm not going to say it doesn't matter. I think where you can always overcome that is the way that as you grow your professional sport, you should always have an ability for the late bloomer. And if you have an ability for the late bloomer, so um, someone like Benny Howe, who's a batter and, and then starts bowling when he's 22 or 23 and comes up with this weird style. I think if that's the case, though, that we'll continue to get outliers. Um, but the other thing is it's about scouting, right? So a lot of these players that are outliers might not get the attention that they should when they're younger. But if you have a good scouting system within your sport, then there should always be, um, there should always be an ability to bring those players on. Um, but yes, there's absolutely no doubt. The better the coaching you have, the more orthodox it becomes. One huge advantage that cricket has, which I suppose basketball has to a lesser extent and football certainly has, is that you might get outlier countries right that think about things completely differently and in that case there'll always be somewhere that that is producing that sort of talent but but there's no doubt that you know 
cookie cutter coaching um, can be a problem uh, for, for the kind of talent you're talking about. James says, oh, question about Victorian cricket. James is going straight to the top next time. Uh, Victoria had some pretty uh, decent pace attacks from the mid-90s through the late 2000s. Rifle, Fleming, Siddle, uh, Brad Williams, Mick Lewis. But I'm interested in your thoughts on the likes of Seeker, Corbett, Harwood, and Innes. So, so it was an incredible time where outside of probably Brad Williams and maybe very early Peter Siddle, um, the system of Victorian cricket kept coming up with these um, incredible fast, medium um, scene bowling talents again and again. Um, uh, it was such a consistent conveyor belt for a very, very long time. And, you know, you, you go, you know, guys like Wise and um, even guys like Ian Harvey and Andrew McDonald. It was just incredible how, how much talent they had. But the ones you're asking about are really interesting. So David Saker, who's obviously gone on to be very famous. He was Australian and English um, uh, bowling coach. Um, probably struggled a little bit <laughs> after the, his bowling uh, lineup got caught uh, with the sandpaper. Um, uh, David Saker was a very, very talented bowler, but, but he had a huge discipline problems when he was young. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, twice in a cricket game, he was, suspe he was suspended for bowling intentional no balls, bouncing people off like 18 yards. Um, and, he, you know, so he was held back by that. He also probably... They probably had other guys of a similar skill set to David Saker. Next one you mentioned is Troy Corbett. Troy Corbett's an incredibly weird one. For those who don't know, Troy Corbett played, I want to say about 15 list day, one day games for Victoria. A couple of first class games as well. But in his list day career, has a bowling average of 11. Left arm bowler, reasonably quick, but not, not express. Swung the ball. I think he could seem it as well from memory. Um, but was called for chuck. Um, was he even called for chucking? Actually, he might not have even been called for chucking. And they just he just disappeared. Last I heard, he was a police officer in regional South Australia. Completely disappeared off the map. It's a real, real shame. Incredible talent. Just before what happened with Murali. And I wonder if Corbett had come along a year and a half after Murali, if people had seen him differently. Although, to be fair, Australia has always been the most hardline on, on um, people with actions. He was one of my heroes as a kid. Um, I think his, so his treatment and Seeker's treatment come from that. Shane Harwood is another one that you mentioned here. So Shane Harwood, um, well, Shane Harwood and Mick Lewis came from Cricket Victoria. And this goes back to Gopinath's question, actually. Victorian cricket just kept finding these fast medium bowlers. And they were like, this is great, but we need some quick bowlers. And this is, I think, Brad Williams had then started to slow down. He might have even gone to Western Australia by that point. They couldn't find any quick bowlers. They just put a call out. And they just said, if you've got a guy in your club um, that bowls really quick or in, in, you faced him in an opposition or he's playing in the country or wherever, um, get in touch and we will, uh, and we will uh, you know, and we will give them a go. Um, Mick Lewis played club cricket not far from where I grew up. I remember people in my school talking about facing him and just being like, this guy's ridiculous. He's so much quicker than everyone else. Um, Shane Harwood came from the country. They were very late bloomers. And so Mick Lewis probably got... I'd have to go back and have a look, but I reckon he came out, he was still playing club cricket at 25, 26. I reckon Shane Harwood was 28, 29, still playing club cricket. Um, they were very good. They were just very old. Matthew Innes, I think, is the most interesting players here. I think he's the one, um, if you take away, Saker would never have had an international career. Corbett had the problems with, the, with his action. Harwood was just picked a little bit too late. Uh, Harwood did play international cricket, of course, just a couple of T20s for Australia. 
Innes is the really interesting one because Australia didn't, after Bruce Reed and Mike Whitney, didn't really fetishize left arm pace bowls. It, it wasn't just Innes. There was also um, uh, Harity from South Australia um, who was, I, I always thought, could bowl incredibly quick left arm pace before Mitchell Johnson was around. Um, uh, and Innes wasn't quite at that pace, but he was pretty nippy, Innes. And I think he had a first-class bowling average of 26 in a time when, remember, every Australian batter had a first-class batting average of, like, 60. You know, Martin Love and Matthew Elliott and all, all these sorts of guys who didn't even make it. And um, and Innes was regularly just at the top of the charts. The big thing with Innes that I remember, and it's one of it, – Matthew Innes, he's a lovely guy, actually. I've talked to him a couple of times um, via Twitter and and Facebook and things like that. I think he got pigeonholed as a new ball bowler in an era before we had data to check that. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't a new ball bowler because he's a beautiful bowler with a new ball. Um, and maybe there's something to, to be said for that. But the problem was that, you know, you had Fleming and McGrath, um, Gillespie, all ahead of him uh, with the new ball. Uh, and he was, and it was like, where do you fit him into the bowling attack? Um, I, but I think Matthew Innes was an absolute... Uh, brilliant bowler. Um, and if, if you're asking me which one, I mean, maybe if Shane Harwood's found when he's 20, I mean, Shane Harwood was really quick. I mean, one stage, uh, Victoria had Dirk Nannis, Shane Harwood, and Mick Lewis. I reckon they were all above 92 miles an hour. Um, it was one of the fastest bowling attacks in the world, and it was, you know, playing shield cricket. Um, uh, but I think that for me, Innes was the one that really was, I, I think he could have translated to international cricket. Um, within the system went on to work for football clubs. I think he worked for an Olympic, um, cycling, um, uh, team as well, that might've even won medals. One of the Asian teams. I can't remember. Um, so really interesting, um, story, um, but worked in Aussie rules football with, um, with Footscray Western Bulldogs as they are now. Um, uh, so yeah, I, it, it, that was a really, really interesting time that Victoria's batting wasn't particularly interesting outside of, you know, Elliot and Hodge. But Victoria's bowling and Victoria's all-rounders is really, really interesting, the sorts of players that they had um, at that point. Jake says, what do you think the best ways for the IPL to expand in the near future would be? Seems like they will expand into a few more Indian cities sooner rather than later. Well, KSR just came on my podcast and said he doesn't think that. Um, uh, and then, you, But you're asking whether they should go away from India. I really don't think they need to go away from India um, you mentioned Pune. So Pune had a team, didn't it, at one stage? I think there's plenty of big Indian cities to, to do. Um, going away from India, something that they could do in the future. Um, you know, having a team in London would be really, really interesting. Um, obviously, they're not going to have one in Pakistan, but having one in Pakistan would also be really interesting. Um, <coughs> and may, may not happen ever, or, but, but, but those sorts of things, other markets, having one in South Africa. Um, all these sorts of things are possible, but I think there's more than enough places in India um, to fill uh, quite a few other teams. But I do think that having two teams in Mumbai, Kolkata and Delhi, which I think you all mentioned in your question, is probably going to happen well before we see them uh, look at anything overseas. Um, we have seen so far, less so in the 100, but certainly in the Big Bash, that that sort of having the two teams in the one place, it, it, it's tricky. Um, the Renegades have been a better team than the Stars, but the Stars have the MCG and kind of have the bigger, you know, push. And the Grand Renegades tried to make themselves into the Western um, Suburbs team, which didn't quite work. 
it's worked a little bit better in Sydney because you have the SCG team and then you literally have the Western um, Suburbs team. Um, but even then, the, you know, the Thunder are a much smaller team than the Sixers, um, although have the more interesting kind of fan base because it's so young. Um, it's it's tough, but I do think in a league like that, like, it, you know, some some other filthy rich owner is going to want a team in Mumbai or Delhi or Kolkata, Bangalore. You know all these places; they could all easily have a second team, but uh, but I think they'll fill out a couple of extra places. Um, like Pune is a very very good example of that. Um, uh, I don't know if Nagpur um, needs a team, but Nagpur's you know got a big ass cricket stadium, you know very very modern cricket stadium too. Um, so I think they'd certainly do that before they look internationally. But you know if you look at it. Um, I think most of those bigger leagues, the American leagues, and, and the way that um, football works is kind of the way that you want to go forward, right? I mean, rugby might be the best example of this. Rugby's probably made itself a more relevant sport at times because of its ability to have an international league. Um, you know, individual leagues probably don't work quite as well um, in, in that way. Uh, Ross says, what do you say to the idea that a shorter the format, the stronger the case for a specialist wicketkeeper? Uh Given that in, say, T20, the lower order will usually not face many deliveries. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question, Ross. What I would say is it's worth having a look at a T20 game or a T10 game and how many balls actually go through to the wicketkeeper that the wicketkeeper can affect. Um, I can't remember if it was CrickViz or someone else, um, but I think it's less than 20 balls a game. Um, and then you're looking at, okay, so if it's less than 20 balls a game, and so let's say it's less than, what's that? Uh, between 15 to 20% of, of the game. Uh, how many of those will a specialist wicketkeeper be a bonus for over a normal wicketkeeper, which is a fair question. The other thing that people don't talk about enough is that obviously specialist wicketkeepers are also better at taking runouts and, and all those other things uh, throws in from the, from the field. I, I, think it's just, I think it's just working that out. I think most teams would prefer the depth, but what you're saying makes sense. Also, you know, in in test cricket, wicketkeepers actually take the ball a lot more at a higher percentage. So is that the format that we should be looking at a specialist wicketkeeper? Um, uh, I don't think any of this is going to happen because, as I've said many times before, in in first class cricket, um, you, you know, generally what happens is that um, uh, what's the best way of putting it? The uh, the best um, before first class cricket, the best batters are picked for junior representation squads and then someone is given the gloves we don't really have specialist wicketkeepers anymore the best wicketkeepers are probably you know club cricketers um sadly these days um so we're not producing specialist wicketkeepers to even test this as a theory there really are so few left a couple in asia outside of asia i really don't think there's many specialist wicketkeepers left anywhere um shufu says i was watching bangladesh uh, versus sri lanka uh, and the highlights, there are a few left-handed finger spinners in both teams. Among them, Shakib has been quite economical, though his balls don't turn that much. Uh, over the last few wagon wheels, I listened to your comparison between right and left-handed finger spinners. I'd love to hear your view on different left-arm spinners. Uh, wasn't Rangana Harath the most successful of them? Uh, yes, I would say so. I'm trying to think. Oh, well, Jadeja might, I might go past him. Um, but I think but I think traditionally, Harath's probably been the best one. Um, so you have... You have the, the the Western kind, which is your Ashley Giles, Michael Beer, Paul Harris types, big, strong, former fast bowlers generally who can't be pulled. Uh, you then have your sort of more Rangana Harath, um, 
uh, Murali Kartik, sort of more flighty. Uh, Bisham Beatty, when I mean, you watch Bisham Beatty, you can see how slow he is. And then we've got this new thing, which I suppose is it's almost a combination. Uh, Akshar Patel might be one of them. Monty Panasar was one of them, which is probably more tall, a little bit strong um, uh, bowlers who you can't really pull off a length and you can't, can't get down to as easily. And then you have these sort of low, slow, uh, sorry, low, fast um, armed kind of guys. So you have Shakib, um, Jadeja, um, I'm trying to think of anyone else. Uh, that I'm missing out there. Um, those those courts. Sorry. So that's that's kind of your four main kinds of left arm finger spinners. Um, generally, it's conditions based, I suppose, where you come from uh, locally as much as the region or the country. Um, you know, one of the big things about Western left arm finger spinners is that they get, if they're not strong, they get pulled quite easily because the ball bounces a little bit higher. Um, that's not as big of a problem in Asia because if you're trying to pull um, uh, spinners, you know they can uh, the ball can run along the ground a little bit more, keep slower, so LBW and bowls are a little bit more in, in play. So you can see how they all develop a little bit differently. Um, in in um, Sri Lanka, the ball spins so much more than anywhere else that you really want someone who's going to probably toss it up a little bit more, like Embaldina or Harath. And if you look at um, Bangladesh or probably Pakistan's another one here, probably want to be a little bit quicker and skid it on um, on those kinds of pitches. Uh, Emma Deep says, is your mate Steve Harmison right when he says sports scientists and medical teams are wrong about pace bowlers and injuries? He argues that bowlers need to bowl more to reduce incident of injury. Um, uh, I think there are very, very different kinds of spin bowlers out there. Sorry, seam bowlers out there. And that you can't, there are certainly... It's a bit like any kind of athletes. There are certain kind of athletes that need to groove their body. And there are probably certain kinds of athletes who need more rest and re uh, recovery between them. And I think that Steve Harmison's probably talking about certain kinds of bowlers, forgetting that there were many other guys who were probably overworked who just disappeared and didn't make it. I don't think there's one kind of... I, we, I talked about this on a, on a podcast with um, Barney Rone, but like Mark Wood and Jofra Archer are so different physically. How could they possibly need the same thing? Um, you know, I don't see how that is a uh, a possible um, outcome there. So um, for me, it's, it's not that I think Steve Harmison is wrong. I think that there are just different kinds of bowlers. And and he's probably thinking more... My, my guess is he's probably thinking as much as anything, what works for him. And what worked for him won't necessarily work for everyone. Um uh, Nadika says, what are your thoughts on Selma Bart taking a coaching role for Singapore? Yeah, I mean, Selma Bart went in front of court and basically said that cricket was like uh, WWE wrestling, WWF, whatever it's called these days. So yeah, so essentially, I think from that perspective, it's hard to forgive him and to move on, whereas with other players, it's not. I certainly wouldn't have got him involved with Singapore cricket. Um, I think that's a mistake. Um, and it goes back to what we were talking about with Joe Clark the other day, you know, there are players who do things wrong and come out and, and try and spend the rest of their life, you know, um, fixing that problem. And there are other players who, who don't. And I think someone is a perfect example of a player who hasn't been that on, honest. Like if Lou Vinson got this job, we'd kind of be like, well, no one's been more honest uh, than Lou Vinson. And, and there've been other players that have uh, had problems as well. So yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that. And Trevor says, same kind of thing as it did here. How does franchise system different from club system in football leagues? Clubs are so constantly bought and sold by people. Yeah, well, franchise is already like that. Um, it's just that, so quite often when you're buying a football club, 
you're buying um, the land, the property, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, the shirt sales, all these different chunks of, 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 of ways of making money. That's not really the case with a lot of these franchises at the moment, you know. Um, and so you're just renting the ground for a month, essentially, and you, um, you're probably not making a lot in shirt sales uh, in most countries, really. Um, so it's a lot different than the football model. But the basic thing is that these these franchises, I mean, have a look at the CPL franchises. <laughs> They're changing our hands a lot. I know the IPL teams haven't changed hands a lot, although I think they will as the league matures a little bit more. A lot of the people who put money in at the moment are probably waiting for the big payday coming forward. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we will see teams, um, change hands a lot more. Anyway, thank you for all those questions. Let us go to the room. I think we've got a couple of questions here. Rahul, you there? Yeah, I, um, so I was watching the NBA playoffs and, uh, you know, it's pretty exciting. And obviously in playoffs, a lot of players are constantly getting injured and everything. And that made me wonder, like, for example, in NBA, we have as a viewer, a constant update on what's happening with what player in terms of injuries. We know, okay, this is the, this is there's a problem with the knee. It's a groin injury. What exactly is it, and how long will it take to recover? However, I noticed that in IPL, we don't get that information. It's very kept very much. So I guess my question is: Is it because journalists do not have that much privileges? Like, for example, Vogue comes to an NBA, and we are as a viewer kept updated at NBA. But in IPL, we, so half of the times, I don't even know why a player is. Is he dropped or is he unfit? Yeah. Oh, it's ridiculous. And it's not the IPL. It's literally, it's every T20 franchise in the world is like this at the moment. And it is, it is so stupid. So, so what the NBA do, and I think what a lot of American sports do, is they, they put out regular updates. So, you know, you might get an update. You might get, I don't know, Mar Marcus Stoinis. Remember the back half of last season, I remember we couldn't work out if Marcus Stornis was going to come back for the finals. We didn't know how injured he was because there was no official uh, comments. Or we have Richard Pump saying stuff. Richard Pump's not even a medical expert. Like, <laughs> I, I, I want to know the official thing. So you watch an NBA game, as you said, and you get, um, what do they have? They have doubtful, questionable, likely, um, or ruled out. I think those, those are the ones. And if it's a longer term injury, you'll get, you get that. They have official reports that they put out. That comes though from the pressure that beat writers put on them, right? So most NBA teams in a, in a good market are going to have what, anywhere between two, five uh, and five, you know, beat writers. Some of the bigger markets, you'll have a lot more than that. You know, the Los Angeles, uh, you know, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York sort of markets. Um, but even the small markets, you're going to have, you know, between two and five sort of regular people, um, asking this information. And so I think it was almost like a, a thing that came together for the baseball teams, basketball. Uh, I think NFL might do something similar. I'm assuming the hockey does where they do that. Now in cricket, <laughs> we have no idea. If you, as you said, there, there are people who cover the, the teams who don't always know if someone is in and out. And especially when it comes to the T20, international cricket's poor, but possible um, for the franchise cricket. Absolutely terrible. You have absolutely no idea what is happening at all times. Um, and it's not good enough and it's not professional enough. And I've complained to teams directly. I've complained to the league. Um, you know, f fun fact, I, I, um, I was uh, uh, asked to interview for the ICC general manager position, uh, sorry, BCCI general manager position. And that was going to be one of my things that I was going to bring in with every team. There's absolutely no reason not to do this. Uh, you know, I'll, from, from a fantasy point of view, from a gambling point of view, from a fan point of view, from uh, from a commentator point of view, like 
Everyone wants to know this. It's just a stupid thing not to do. Now, one thing I would say is the NBA team still lie all the time. Right? Everyone, everyone's unlikely and doubtful, um, and then they I play mean, they every game or fired, the opposite. Like, uh, um, like 76ers right? was fine uh, when they said that Joel Embiid is not going to play, and he actually played, something like that. They do get fined up. I guess it's about the time frame that they... Uh, they yeah, if they just but they still, the last time they, get fined. they got fined, but like I think there was a point at one stage where LeBron James was unlikely or doubtful for 15 straight games and played all of them. Right, so I think they were waiting for LeBron to tell them he needed a rest. So they manipulate it, right? And and that and that's fine. But we still have the information to go on. And so if you look, go back to the Marcus Stoinis one. It, it was that was so annoying to me because you had Delhi who were a real chance of winning the you know the playoffs last year, and them not having Marcus Stoinis would have completely changed how I would have written about them. Um, and if he was only going to be able to come back and just write and and, and just bat. It would have changed how I would have written about them. And you couldn't get anything out of that team, out of that franchise that was official, other than another player going, yeah, I think he'll be okay. And it's like, well, that's that's nothing, right? Um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's stupid. I also think it's it's one of those things that it, it's really, it's an old-fashioned cricket thing that doesn't need to happen, right? We can certainly go beyond that. So uh, for me, um, I'm completely on board with you. And it, and it is, it is worse the lower down the franchise levels you get. You have no idea who's fit and who's not fit from game to game. If you had to guess, um, why do you think they would not tell? Like, well, what are they benefiting out of not telling others that what's the status of the player? Because then the opposition team doesn't know either. That's the advantage. Um, you know, we've got a tradition in cricket where quite often the team, where the captains will quite often give us the team the day before. Uh, if you ask any analyst in the world, he would be like, no, don't tell them. Let's let's maintain that little bit of advantage as much as possible, and uh, it allows you to manipulate these situations a lot better as well. Um, so that's that. That's the main reason. I can't think of anything any other reason other than laziness, and they don't want to talk to the media. But as I said, they don't even need to. They could just release it. It should just be maybe not a website, but just like a a, a regular uh, release that is sent out um, to to the press. Anyway, thanks for your question, mate. Thank you, Zan. Kyle, you there? Yep. So the IPL expansion teams obviously have done really well this year. Wanted to compare that to two other recent franchise expansions. The NHL saw the Golden Knights come in and reach the finals in their first year, and that's widely been considered a good thing because it kind of shook up the league and forced some teams to evaluate their inefficiencies, and the next expansion team did really poorly this year. Meanwhile, the MLS has expansion teams coming every few years, they always shoot up to the right to the top of the league. And then in like five years, they're mediocre. And the legacy teams have been, you know, my local DC United team was the first dynasty. And in the early 2000s, they've been terrible since then. And it's, they're not alone. Almost all the teams that were good in the beginning of the league have been consistently terrible. Do you see IPL expansion going one way or the other with this? And do you think the success of these expansion teams at the expense of the legacy teams will make them reassess how they bring in new teams in the future. Yeah, it's interesting because the mega auction is kind of set up perfectly for expansion teams. If you look at the way that expansion teams work in other sports, it's a bit tougher. Also, I think that in the, you know, what, 14 or 15 years, there's probably a few teams that are already set in their ways in certain methods. And I mean, when it was really interesting, it was at Gujarat, I think it was Gujarat, wasn't it? Who came out and said, we're not going to do, we're not going to worry about matchups as much. And I think there was a real thought. I mean, I, I think matchups are very important, but also 
massively overplayed um, within the game. And to have a team come in and say that, I think it shook some people, but it actually, it shows that maybe they were looking at it a different way. One thing I would say about these particular two teams is, I wonder if a good percentage of the other teams came in with, okay, this year is, I mean, if you look at Mumbai, Mumbai kind of took this year off with, with what they did with Joffre Archer. Also trying, you know, you know, an untried South African up the order. Um, I, I think in some ways they, they kind of, they, it was almost like a, a probing year rather than a real year for them. I think a lot of the teams, if you have a look at them, were still set up for their home conditions because they know that probably for the next three seasons I'll be in their home conditions. I think if you look at Lucknow and Gujarat, they're probably more suited to the kind of tournament we had this year. The other thing I would say about Lucknow is that they are not, I don't didn't think they were a particularly good team. They were just better than a lot of bad teams. Um, I'm not surprised that they were bounced out so quickly. What, it's, what it says for the future is really interesting because I, su I suppose them both having success this year, I would think would give... If I was running the league, I'd feel more confident coming in. You know, you see sometimes when, you know, uh, a franchise, a new franchise comes into a sport and they just struggle for years on years. It makes you not want to bring in new franchises. So I think it's a really good thing for the IPL that they've had a good year. Whether they'll still be good in year two, three, and four is far more interesting, of course. But from an expansion point of view for the IPL, I think it's probably a success, if that makes sense. Yeah, the amount of players retaining always seems so low to me especially as in like retaining fan loyalty. But I guess that is kind of the nature of franchise cricket that people are move around every year. I think there's now a real movement towards from Indian fans uh, and I, well, sorry, IPL fans that we want to keep the best players. I think, I think also like after what happened to Delhi, it's like, well, <laughs> Delhi didn't win a championship, completely changed their fortunes, built up all these young players and then couldn't keep any of them. <laughs> Right, And it's like, it doesn't make any sense. You want to be able to back a good franchise. I mean, Delhi was an absolute basket case for years. They finally get it right. And then they have to start again almost straight away. So I do believe that there is probably more of a movement now amongst the fans and people within the IPL itself to, come on, we're, we're, we're beyond this. Um, KSR, I think me and KSR might even mention this on the... Um, on the recent IPL podcast, I think he brought this up. And it's certainly something that I've talked about a lot. So I think that even if it's, what, seven players? Or maybe it's, I don't know, maybe you could have a thing where you can retain four players over 23 and four players under 23 or something. So you can continually be developing younger players. Because the problem is that what you just said is true. And, and so far in cricket, it doesn't matter as much. But eventually it is going to matter that you really want that player who develops through your system that you can ad identify with your team. And so far it's like two or three players, right? <laughs> that, that, that can, that are consistently in air. I think in the long term that's a problem for the IPL. Um, and it's one that I think they can fix it with maybe even the system that I just said then it allows you to keep a couple of extra players. I remember when I was with the CPL, I really wanted to keep a lot of younger players and, you know, some of the, the senior people around uh, the CPL were like, no, we'll keep the really good players. And I was like, but, <laughs> We can develop a whole team of younger players, but politically, it's really, really hard to say we're going to keep that guy who's getting paid five thousand dollars a year um, over the guy that's getting paid, you know, hundred thousand dollars a year. And a similar thing might happen in the IPL. Is if you have my system of a couple of younger players and older players, I think you keep that continuity a little bit longer. Yeah, that makes more sense to me. Thank you. Thanks for coming on, Carl. 
All right, who's next to you? Atish, you there? Yeah, hi. Can you hear me? I can. What's your question, mate? Yeah, so uh, last night I was at the Eden Gardens for the Eliminator, and they had a 45-50 minute rain interruption, when in fact, and I can attest, there was literally no rain. Like, I think in the entire 45 minutes, there were just 15 droplets of water that fell on me. My question is, why is there, like, not some more level of consistency as to when the towers come on? Because the talk was about to happen. Ian Bishop was right there standing in front of me. And then uh, right before, like, the, the coin gets tossed, the covers come up when there was just a little bit of wind and no rain. So h- how can we achieve more consistency that if they had even done the toss and then brought on the covers, the game could have started by 7.45 instead of 8.10 as it eventually did. I think the most important thing there is that there's no consistency in rain. So having consistency within the rain regulations doesn't really work. So for instance, you're looking at what rain is currently coming down. Chances are the the umpires, the match referees, the groundskeepers were probably looking at the radar um, and what was about to come down. And what they wouldn't have wanted to happen is to start the game and have a chunk of rain change how the game goes, ruin the ball, um, change the uh, the idea of the pitch. And they're probably looking at the radar thinking, if we delay it a little bit, um, we won't have any of those problems and we can have one full game. Because I think they have, they could keep the lights on to very late. In I think that uh, I think that was one of the games they could do that on. Um, and so they were probably coming up from that point of view. If we can have a whole game later, that is much better than coming on, coming off, maybe the ball being ruined or whatever, especially in what is a very important game. I think what happened last night, weirdly, I had a friend at the ground who was messaging me about it. Um, I think what happened last night uh, in that particular game was more to do with the fact it was a final and they were trying to get the game out. I think if that was a round-robin game in the middle of the season, I think you, you would have done that. And I've got no problem with that because it was a, very, it was a far more important game. The outcome uh, was much more dramatic and drastic uh, than a normal game. Um, but I can also see it from your side. Look, the, the most important thing is that we do play our game on, on, on a surface that changes so wildly. You're never going to have consistent rain rules. You know, there was that game a few years ago where um, in, in Sydney where the rain got trapped in the grass and everyone got really weird about it. But when you talk to the groundsman about it, he's like, yeah, this is what happens in Sydney. We have this drainage um, thing and when it rains really heavily, it goes through the sand and that didn't happen and it meant that it r- remained slippery and the umpires didn't think it was safe enough. Um, and then you you know you have you know have completely different kinds of grounds and and, and and the way that they go. So look, you can't have consistency. Rain is not consistent. Cricket grounds are not consistent. Um, but I can understand why you were upset in the ground, and that's a fairly normal thing. Uh, cricket fans being upset, as as I've said before, if you were redesigning cricket from today, you you would tackle the rain issue much better than cricket currently has. All right, thanks. Thanks for your question, mate. Jamie, you there? Hello. Yes. Beautiful, mate. What's your question? So I heard um, some guy being interviewed on Test Match Special yesterday. Somebody from the ECB. He was talking about some initiative they've got to prove pitches. And it was kind of light on details of what he was actually saying. So I was wondering whether you've got any idea of what they are actually doing. No, I haven't heard anything directly. I'm assuming... It, so what happened was they put put in a drainage system uh, in uh, mo- most county grounds might have it now. I don't know. Maybe it's all it's more George Dobell question than, than a me question, but they put in, they put in a drainage system 
uh, are all around. So obviously, because England has the biggest problem with rain so that they could play more cricket and it completely changed the squares. And ever since they've been having a lot of trouble with the moisture level in, in the squares. So quite often the pitches are either too dry or too wet and there's kind of no in the middle pitches um, is a major thing. And that is also causing the problems because I think what they want to do, although I could be wrong, well, this is what they certainly should be doing, is they should be making more batting pitches. Um, and at the moment, that's not necessarily the case. And the reason they should make more batting pitches is because that's how you want to sort of imitate what you get internationally. And that's been probably one of England's big problems. And if you look, that was you know, consistently one of New Zealand's big problems. Um, and they went out and fixed the pitches. So I, I didn't hear that interview, so I don't know specifically what they were saying. But certainly the drainage has been a big problem in English cricket for maybe 10, 11 years now. Um, since they 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 went to those uh, those drainage and then being able to k get good consistent cricket pitches has been a problem and then on top of that too many of their pitches obviously favour um, dibbly dobbly type bowlers um, and they really need pitches that are much more flat so that they can get bowlers that will be able to translate to international cricket but that becomes tough because obviously the counties don't always look at it that way and you know I went to a game recently Jamie where um, uh, Kent versus Surrey and Kent, it was a ho Kent home game down in Beckenham and you look at Kent's attack and it's like, how are they ever going to get a wicket on this surface? Uh, because they did not, it, you know, Beckenham is a very international style wicket, very batting friendly, hard surface. You have to bang the ball into it uh, and Kent just didn't have an attack for that. And I think a lot of counties aren't, uh, can get away with that because you come across so few wickets like Beckenham, probably in a good case in Beckenham's case, because it's probably too far, <laughs> too far a batting surface. But but yeah, I think I've been saying this for a long time, you know, batting pitches, oh, sorry, well, uh, changing the pitches in English cricket is a hugely important thing for them um, as a team going forward. Baska, are you there? Hey, Jared. So my question is uh, regarding Andrew Simons and obviously a lot of written is how good a fielder he was. So how would you compare with the other Australian great fielders like Ricky Ponting and Mark Waugh who were slightly more rounded in terms of fielding in slips as well as in outfield? And who is your, my personal favorite is Mark Forward. How would you rate them in terms of the like, all-around fielding and the strengths they had? I think they were both more skillful as fielders than, than, than Simons. So they could do more things. I think Ponting was probably almost a combination of the two. Um, he had some of the athletic gifts of Simons, not all of them, but certainly some of them, which many could kind of field anywhere. I think Mark Wall was probably, especially... And Mark Wall was a very good athlete when he was young, but maybe I think even when he was a very good athlete when he was young, um, he was probably still more a skill-based athlete. Um, so you really want him more in the skill specialist positions, you know, slip, silly point, those sorts of things. Ponting could do those. I'm not sure he was as good as Mark Wall was, though, in those positions. Whereas Simon's big ability was that uh, he's incredibly fast, um, also very big, um, and very powerful, so you get off the mark very quickly. Um, and I would have thought of those three people had by far the strongest arm. So, so you think of Simons more as a ring fielder and a boundary rider. You think of Mark War as more occasional ring fielder, but more of a catcher and a skill position fielder. And you think of Ricky Ponting as kind of someone who could do all of the three, but was probably at his absolute best in the ring, I would have thought, with, in Ponting's case. So whereas... If you, if you ask me where Simon's best position was, it's probably as a boundary rider. Um, uh, you know, uh, 
Although he was also brilliant in the ring, but he was probably so. So Mark was probably the best catcher. Um, Ponting probably the best ring fielder of the three, and Simon's the best boundary rider. One of the other things with with um, Ponting specifically was the accuracy of his throws. I still think he's probably one of the most accurate um, throwers that we've seen. So John T. Rhodes is a brilliant fielder, but John T. Rhodes is not a particularly accurate um, uh, thrower. Um, and so you do need that combination of kind of everything there. And I think that's probably what Ponting had. Um, although Simon's pretty accurate as well. I'm not sure he was quite as accurate as, as Ponting was, but um, Simon's was very accurate as well. And Mark Wall was very accurate, but he was probably just that little bit slower to the, to the ball than the other two guys. Um, but they were probably also in some ways, although m maybe in Mark Wall's era, Dean Jones was a slightly better athlete, but they were also maybe the best athlete of each of their eras, if that makes sense. Although I suppose Simon's and Ponting sort of overlapped a little bit more there. But, um, you know, each one was probably the best athlete for a time in that team. Um, and then, you know, Simon's sort of took it to another level um, with, with his with his movements. Um, but, yeah, I think Ponting is probably the guy that you could field almost anywhere and you would get an above-average fielder. Um, and the other two, uh, maybe two of the three places, they were probably above-average fielders. Thanks, Jed. No worries. Asidath just says on the podcast, um, can Jadeja end up in the top all-rounders of all time by the end of his career? Yeah, he has to keep making runs at a similar level that he is at the moment because his early career batting was quite low. But I think if you look at the top all-rounders um, all of all time, um, he's probably already in that bracket. So, yeah, certainly, I certainly don't think he has any problem of, of getting there. And we have Shramana. So slightly backstage question. Like in international sports, if a country has sizable like cricket following, then whatever the team does, the fans tend to follow them. Like I'm not gonna say that India had a bad World Cup, so Australia is my favorite team. Right. That's all like franchise cricket. These fans the franchise have to manufacture their own fans. How do you think they do that? It's franchises that keep winning, it's fine. Like, maybe more people are attracted to them. But have you been past, like, uh, have you worked with franchises that maybe are not winning? So that says they're like, let's at least make funny deals. And how important is that? And, like, is it even important to have, like, franchisee-based fan followers? If the IPL is famous enough, people are going to watch their matches. So is it, like, do they care about that? And... If they care, they do make a lot of, like every IPL franchise, even BBL sometimes, they make some stuff on like Instagram and all that, and YouTube also. But then at other times, I feel like they don't even try hard enough. Like they're kind of like in the middle. If it is important, they don't do it hard enough. But then it seems important because they do some things. Yeah, I suppose if you own a smaller IPL team, you're really, the majority of your money you're always going to make is going to be from the major rights. It kind of doesn't matter at a certain point how many fans you build because you're probably not going to be able to monetize them massively. Enough that will change your trajectory as a, as, a, as, a, as a franchise. But at the same time, that is, that is something that you should, you know, that, that sporting teams have always done. Obviously, you try and build fans. Um, you want a sizable amount. I mean, if you think about it, uh, what, what's a good team here? Um, Sunrisers or, or Rajasthan, you know, those sorts of, that sort of level of franchise, what they, the, the size of the Twitter account, if that franchise is ever sold matters, right? 
the the size of it, it doesn't matter as much in the really big market teams but in those mid-level market teams how many followers you have on youtube how many fans that you have and all those sorts of things do probably end up on the bottom line and why teams do it and why teams don't do it well a lot of this comes down to the kind of owners that you that you have um i remember when i was with st lucia for instance uh we had an owner who was desperate for uh uh, who was desperate to get really good content but wouldn't pay a company that really understood what they were doing to be able to do that. And so therefore what you got was content that no one engaged with that didn't really go anywhere. I suppose that the high watermark level from there is probably the Rajasthan team that Rajasthan probably incorrectly fired. Um, and, you know, there's been some very other, you know, some very other interesting sort of uh, franchise stuff uh, around the world. These days, I would think if I if I was buying into a franchise, and I'm probably not about to, but if I was buying into a franchise, part of what I'm looking for is the impact that that franchise has because I'm actually buying a content-making service as much as anything. And I think that for a lot of people um, now, that is the way they're doing it. There are a lot of legacy owners kind of in the IPL and the PSL and some of these older leagues now who don't think about it in that way. And they, they think about it in a sort of more, I own a sports team. Whereas you talk to a lot of the more interesting owners and they'll say things like, this is not, um, I own a, a, a content machine. So in that case, they're thinking about the social media is part of that team. That's not the case for all teams. And I think if you're trying to grow a market realistically, if like, if I was with the IPL, uh, uh, I, and was running, you know, the IPL, I'd actually want the teams to be out there as much as we, you want the IPL to be out there trying to get more fans. And I think that social media and, you know, any forms of media that you can get your players on. I had this conversation with the ECB years ago. But they, they were saying to me, we can't get our players. Our players aren't well known enough. And I was like, you're not offering your players to the right people, right? You need to go out into the media, understand what the media is looking for and do that. And now... I would say the exact same things to a team. Then I would say the exact same things of social media. What are these fans looking for? And when you have a good social media presence or when you have a good online presence, however that, that goes, and you have a good presence through the media, more people find you and you have more chance of building fans, which allows you to grow all these things. And when you want to sell the franchise, it's more important. So I think there are probably a few different ways that owners look at the teams at the moment. And there are also really conservative teams out there who don't want their players to say anything, right? They would, rather, they would rather go through a whole year where almost nothing is ever said except for really dry content. I think for me, and, and you, might, you might know this better, but the two teams that I always thought were quite interesting were Delhi and Rajasthan. Um, Delhi do a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Rajasthan try very hard. Sometimes I, I'm not always a big fan of what they do, but they're trying really hard. Some of the other teams, I'm like, what are you doing? You've got some of the greatest players in the world. Make some content. Um, you know, do something with these players. And and I think that a lot of that comes from the kind of the kind of people that I know some of the people who work in these IPL teams, for instance. And the kinds of people who are actually working there are not strong enough to make a noise, if that makes sense, and say, no, whether we win or lose, we do content, right? We're going to do a bunch of stuff before the season starts. We're going to do a little bit of stuff during the season. And we're going to do a bunch of stuff for the off season. And I think a lot of the people who are employed aren't really powered by their bosses. And then they run into cranky coaches and 
jaded older players and all these sorts of things, agents and managers sometimes as well. And I don't think they're hiring the right people to be able to maximize that. But this is a really important part of cricket now, right? And you, 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 you know, if you follow a really good team who's really good at social media content or, or getting their players into the media or whatever that may be, and then you, and you follow another team that's not, you see the difference. And I really think that it's a huge mo a lost opportunity that's not that hard. I really don't think it's that hard to do. Um, but sadly, it seems like it must be. So kind of like a part of that, how important do you think like that since every franchise is based in a city or a state, do you think like that is like people maximize that enough or use that enough? Last year, KKR couldn't make Owen Morgan say Kolkata. And I was so pissed off because we don't even win and the captain couldn't say the name right. Oh, you, you're saying pronunciation and stuff? Yeah, it is a simple, it's just one word. I'm not saying you should know Bengali, but it's just one word. No, no, no. Cricket and pronunciation is so shit. <laughs> I remember um, early, uh, when uh, Denver Nuggets have a bunch of European players in their NBA team and they send out the correct pronunciations and the correct nicknames and the correct shortenings and the correct casual stuff, right, of their players. And you've got Argentinian players and Serbian players and, you know, uh, all these players from different backgrounds. In cricket, it's far more common to have players from everywhere and for everyone to mispronounce them, even simple things like the amount of commentators that say Pat Cummings and James Pattinson, <laughs> or Patterson, sorry, I should say in his case, and it happens for team names. We, there was a commentator recently who kept saying, and, and it's a real problem with, with, with Punjab. A lot of Western people were taught Punjab as Punjab, right? Or Punjab. And I don't know why we were all taught this incorrectly, but we were. But there was a commentator on the IPL recently who kept saying it. And I'm like, we need to just get better with pronunciations, right? And, and it needs to be, there needs to be a way forward with this. And the fact that players are, are doing things incorrectly as well is even worse. But yeah, I, I really think there's too many of the people involved on this level of cricket don't really have the, I don't know what's the best way to put it, almost the gravitas to fix these problems. Does that make sense? They're quite often, quite often a lot of the social media people are really, really junior or they're all based miles away from everyone else. Um, and a lot of the media managers are again, very junior people who won't speak up and they, they put, and, and those caught that causes problems and run into it again and again. Um, and so if you really, who you have international cricket for the first time ever has an incredibly great crop of media managers, which means that they try and get the players onto, you know, they try and help the press but they're also trying to help the players and they're also understanding of what the, the cricket board wants and what the agents want and all these sorts of things the generation before them were either completely on the side of the media or completely on the side of the players and it was absolute carnage you either couldn't get an interview or you got too many interviews and none of the players were, were looked after getting those right people is really hard and there aren't that many of them in cricket, but we do have them now and they should be involved with PSL teams and IPL teams and hundred teams. And I think too often they, they're not. So are they like, for? I think you work for Melbourne stars. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, for like uh, the media managers in those kind of places, are they from Melbourne? If they're trying to tap into that market, like is the Kolkata manager Bengali? Do we know that? Like I'm not saying everyone should be Ooh. like respective, but, is that something they're trying to tap into or are they just trying to tap into general fan base? Or Melbourne specifically? Yeah, I don't think the Melbourne Stars and the Melbourne Renegades shared the same 
media person, basically. <laughs> basically. And they're both from Melbourne. But um, there was not a lot of thought went into that. I think the social media teams in the Big Bash were a bit different. No, see, I don't think you need someone. You, I'm not from Kolkata, right? But I could be a very good media manager for KKR, right? Or, or a social media person for them. I would then hire other people who were experts in that fan base, but you can learn if you're, if you're diligent, you can learn a, a lot about the fan base very quickly. I think what happens is with a lot of these teams is they promote very young people who know about social media quite often, or young people who won't speak up against anyone. And they don't, what they don't see it as is a specialist job that you need an expert in, right? And I think that's the difference. And I think one thing the ICC's got very good at over the last couple of years is when the ICC has an event, they bring in a lot of the best social media people and me and media people that aren't involved uh, in the World Cup, right? So it might be people from the women's game. It might be people from the associates game. It might be, you know, let's say England sent out their media manager. Maybe England's second media manager goes out, right? Because then they're not involved. And these people are real specialists. They understand who works in cricket. They understand the narratives. They understand the, so, the different social media needs of different fan bases, which is what you're talking about. They're not specifically experts. Uh, one of the bigger problems with the social media stuff that you're talking about is that a lot of these comp a lot of these franchises hire social media teams who are experts in social media, but they're not specifically experts in cricket social media. It doesn't matter if they understand the local fans or not. They don't understand how to do it. And a lot of, and it takes them a while to catch up. And so they end up being very conservative with what they do. And it never really goes anywhere. You really need people who can understand the market and just go bang, bang, bang. We're going to do this. Okay. That didn't work for the Kolkata audience, but um, maybe there's something else that we can try here. Right. And I think that there is certainly, um, there are certainly ways of doing that. But the bigger problem that you've really tapped into is that uh, there aren't that many experts in this field because a lot of the new franchises don't invest in those people. And so what you should have in cricket is you should have 40 to 50 absolutely top-notch social media and media managers who travel around the circle the same way that Ben Cutting does and Tim David does and... Um, uh, you know, and, you know, Junaid Khan used to, and, you know, those sorts of people, right? That We should have similar level franchise people um, involved in this. And what generally happens is the opposite, that every time you go to a new franchise, they've just hired some random company, in, usually in Gujarat or Ahmedabad or um, where are some of the other ones come from? Chennai, right? And they don't understand the culture in, in St. Lucia, but they're also not used to actually making cricket content. They're just very good at social media content. And there, uh, there isn't that expert thing. So you can, you can hire one of those groups, but they have to be managed by someone who gets it. And what you've tapped into is the exact same problem with everything outside of coaches, physiotherapists and strength conditioning train, trainers. So it's the same problem with administrators. It's the same problem with media managers, social media managers, analysts, right across the board. People just keep hiring these, these people who aren't experts and it doesn't really work. And then they pick the next person who's not really an expert, right? Rather than getting strong professionals in and actually going, this is a part of our business we really need to think about. And I think, um, you know, there's a real disconnect here between the uh there's a real disconnect between 
what you should be doing with media and social media and what teams are actually doing. And it's because they won't invest in it. And this is partly because um, we have a two-month tournament and we don't have a six-month or a seven-month tournament where you can't really get away with those things. There's so much media that is created for the IPL teams without them needing to do anything, right? Whereas if you have a longer league, media eventually is just going to get bored and turn to something else after three months. And so you really need strong professionals to be able to keep getting the, the eyeballs. Most of these leagues don't need that because you only have a month or two months uh, to be able to do that. And you can usually keep the media interested for that amount of time, even if you have a terrible media manager or, or a terrible online presence. Um, interesting enough, I don't know if you've seen this, but in the, um, uh, in the chat, Kyle has said that as a non-Indian fan of the IPL, uh, it was the Delhi and Rajasthan uh, social media um, teams that really helped him find a team. And I think that's where it's really, really important I do see, and I've, I've talked to this with teams before, sometimes they're like, we'll just, you know, we'll have enough fans that we'll always be able to make money and it's the TV rights that will go up and the IPL will continue to grow. But I just think that that's short-sighted and you're, you're not maximizing the amount of interest and I think revenue you can make through having really strong online presences and, 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 and being involved in the media more often. Um, I think one thing that I would say of the, the IPL is that it actually it's it's easier to get players in the IPL to media organizations than it is from the Indian team, which is great. But I also think that they should be a lot more strategic about, you know, how they place their big name players during the tournament um, outside of the IPL. Um, uh, you know, what programs they should go on and how they should go on it. And I'm not sure that that integration currently works within uh bcci at all certainly not the ipl and that's what i've talked that's what i i've um, um talked to the ecb about before and some other smaller boards about you really have to think about these are the biggest tv shows around at the moment can we get a tv can we get a player on it this is the most popular radio show this is the most popular podcast it's got nothing to do with cricket but during this tournament can we get our player on here because that's you know um, one of the best examples of this in modern times is probably the um uh, the Tailenders podcast, which is a podcast about cricket, which is actually really good at getting non-cricket people uh, involved in that kind of podcast. We The opposite, of course, also works. When you have a, a podcast that's already working or a TV show or a YouTube channel that's already working, has nothing to do with cricket. Okay, do you want Hardik Pandya to come on? And I think that's probably another area that the IPL teams probably haven't quite worked out enough at the moment. Thanks. Thanks for your question, though. Again, I think you had the last one last week and you've got the last one this week. Thank you very much. Thank you to everyone who came on again. Remember to look after all of our sponsors. If you need to Manscape yourself, go to Manscape and put in the code Red Inca. And also, you know, Bodyline T-shirts. I'm rocking the Morning Everyone T-shirt, the Richie Benno T-shirt today. And go and download the 99.94 app as well. We've had our launch. It went really well. I'm doing a podcast on that soon to explain why we've started 99.94 and where we're hoping to go with it and everything else. But huge thanks to everyone who came into the Spotify Live today. And I'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on the 99.94 Network. For more information about us, go to 9994dm.com and you can also sign up for our beta launch. 
And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do, and that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you, because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Bakundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orajasi Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics. Oh, 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 oh